welcome back to another episode of From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. Today's story is a little longer, so I've broken it up into two parts. You're now listening to the first part of a story entitled Work for Hire. The story was written and produced by me. Thank you. He was bearded, and his hair ran down to the middle of his back, thick and gnarled and crunchy from fluids that had long since congealed. His face was wrinkled and burnt brown, the color of a worn leather chair. His nails were yellow and sharp, much like his rotten teeth, and he wore little more than rags, a threadbare cotton t-shirt and a pair of torn sweatpants. If you saw him on the side of the road, as many people did, you would know him immediately, a common vagrant a vagabond, a homeless person, a hobo, a bum. You might guess his age, though, more than likely, you'd be wrong. From your car, which is where you would most likely see him, you'd be unable to see his eyes and how young they were, how they could still be surprised, how they could still be filled with awe and wonder, and how they could still be frightened. And from your car, you might guess that he was in his mid-40s or even mid-50s, but you'd be wrong. The man I just described to you was no more than 29 years old and had been a vagrant for only three and a half of those 29. But three and a half years is more than enough, more than enough to turn you into something that society doesn't recognize. It is more than enough time to transmute your entire being. This 29-year-old learned that lesson the hard way, facing three winters, four summers, and countless nights out in the cold and the wet and the dirty can transform you, mentally and physically, into something beyond all recognition. Each time he passed by a shop window or a public bathroom mirror, he saw a stranger, a dirty, hollowed-out stranger who had stolen his soft blue eyes. And when people passed him on the sidewalk, he found that they regarded him in the same manner you might regard a cockroach or other vermin, looking down on him in disgust or, even worse, quickening their pace in fear and pretending as though he didn't exist. Homelessness, this 29-year-old discovered, was, as a word, an overgeneralization, a blanket term that inaccurately described his condition. Yes, he was homeless, but that was only one of the many, many necessities he had to live without. He was also toothbrushless and foodless and clean underwearless and shoeless and friendless and showerless and transportationless and jobless and, most of all, hopeless. Shelter was at the top of his grand to-do list, sure, but food or thick socks would be more immediately useful, if not more essential to his survival, than a roof over his head. This 29-year-old found that homeless person was a descriptor as meaningless as sick person. It did nothing to describe the actual condition of someone without housing, their needs, their reasons for being in such a precarious position, and their daily struggles. It was a nice umbrella term to create a certain distance between the average middle-class American and the homeless people that ran around at night breaking windows and causing further harm to society. It was a tactic, maybe not a conscious one, maybe not even a purposeful one, but nevertheless a linguistic tactic so successful at othering an entire populace that the 29-year-old even began to hate himself. Homeless person, he'd think. Homeless person. The 29-year-old wasn't mentally ill, wasn't a drug addict, wasn't involved in any kind of illicit activity, and didn't run with any criminal gangs or organizations. 
The poor 29-year-old was a victim of the most dangerous thing life can throw at you, a string of bad luck. Through a series of serious mishaps and misfortunes, the 29-year-old had fallen through the cracks of society like so much water through fingers and ended up on his ass, shivering on the street. The bureaucracy of the state had failed him, the system of employment had failed him, and in order to get back on his feet, he would need a little more than his typical panhandling salary of two or three dollars every couple days. He would need money for a deposit and first month's rent. He would need money for clean clothes. He would need money for food to fill his refrigerator and to cook on his stove. And he would need money for gas and electric bills to power his fridge and to fuel his stove. These were just the basics. The most basic of all basics. There would be other bills, things like insurance, medical and otherwise, things like transportation and communication, things that would siphon capital from his bank account quicker than he could ever hope to replace it. Bills would pile up like horse manure in a jockey stable, and before he'd know it, he'd be broke again, out on the streets, curled up in a back alley somewhere. The 29-year-old thought it was so strange that the state had regulated some things with such rigidity and specificity, things like automobiles and pharmaceuticals and the sales of goods, but when it came to humanity, the state had no contingency plan for people living without food or shelter, wandering around without aim or direction, slowly dying out in the open, out in the street in front of their fellow countrymen who would rather ignore their existence than face the reality of the situation. And the true, unfaceable reality is that, by some immeasurable turn of events, by the rumblings of the universe or the influence of God, by the randomness of time or by the cruelty of statistics, you are the beneficiary of some kind of system, while the person you see dying on the road is a casualty of that very same apparatus. And while you may blame poor life choices, drugs, alcohol, or mental illness, you understand, deep within you, that the person you see dying on the side of the road is really you. And that nothing, nothing but the randomness of the universe has protected you from following their same fate. There is no definite safety net for anyone, middle class, upper class, or the very elite. If the economic environment calls for your head, you can be sure you'll shoot to rock bottom like a fiery meteor, ending up there like anyone else. Even the most wealthy man in America could ostensibly fall from grace and end up a muttering wino at the subway station. No position is secure or guaranteed. We must all tread water, violently and with our own survival in mind, or fall prey to the system like the poor 29-year-old. But the 29-year-old still held a measure of pride, even after three and a half years of destitutism, and would not let himself go down without a fight. Each morning, after spending the night sleeping or trying to sleep in a doorway or under a freeway overpass or in an abandoned warehouse, the 29-year-old took his cold and sore bones down to one of his favorite intersections and held out a cardboard sign which read, Work for hire, and nothing else. It was a slogan scribbled on a soggy shred of cardboard with an old Sharpie marker. The 29-year-old felt uncomfortable asking for money or food without offering some kind of service in return, and he understood American psychology well enough to know that people would rather see a homeless person still trying, still acting as though he's playing the game and just in a bad slump, than to show a loss of faith in the system entirely. And although his sign specifically solicited opportunities to earn a wage, he had never once been asked to do any kind of labor for any money or food he received. He would stand on the corner of his street, feet cold, eyes cold, hands cold, nose cold, ears cold, and hold his sign. Cars buzzed and belched smoke in his face. 
Women with yappy dogs crossed the street when they saw him, and men with large overcoats and gold class rings shook their heads in a vague display of disgust. These men were not necessarily disgusted with the 29-year-old, but with what he represented, with his flagrant rejection of everything it meant to be a good American. He was essentially denying the American dream. He was in open rebellion against the great idea of American opportunism. He was a stain on the sidewalk, a creature not human or animal, something to fear and despise and who should be lent no sympathy. Some days proved more fruitful than others. On the good days, if you could call them that, he'd scrape up enough cash to walk down the block and grab a sandwich or a tub of soup from a nearby deli. On the bad days, he'd start looking for a place to sleep early, maybe getting a good spot before it was taken by some other sorry bastard without a place to call home. The bad days came more often than the good ones. In fact, there were really no good days, only long days, and even longer nights. The nights were the hardest. Each one came with its own series of unsettling adventures. It was a rare night when the 29-year-old could sleep without being disturbed, whether by other, more aggressive, even violent vagrants and homeless nomads, or by law enforcement personnel. Sometimes the nightly misadventures would become downright horrific, like on Christmas Eve of 2018, when the 29-year-old, then a 27-year-old, found shelter in an abandoned Kmart only to be woken up in the wee hours of Christmas morning by a young lady who was holding a serrated steak knife against his throat. That night he lost his boots and his overcoat, two items that can be the difference between life and death when living on the street. He remembered the young lady repeating the same thing over and over again. I'm sorry, I have kids. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have kids. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I have kids. The 29-year-old thought the scabby lady looked like a vampire in the cold morning light. She was missing all of her front teeth except for her two rotten canines, giving them an exaggerated and carnivorous appearance. What was left of her hair was wild and knotted and twisted in all directions like a frayed piece of rope, and along her arms she had written the sad story of all heroin addicts whose addiction had taken them to the brink, bloody tracks dotting her arms like rotten, festering chicken pox. Whatever kids she had, they were receiving no help from her. After that frightening Christmas encounter, the 29-year-old found it hard to sleep anywhere, let alone on the side of the road or under an overpass or outside a train stop. And what sleep he did get through the night was cheap and unreplenishing, like half of his brain was still on high alert, unable to relinquish itself to a complete blissful rest. But even so, the 29-year-old would pull his skinny body off the concrete or the bench or the front steps he was sleeping on and meander like a corpse to his street corner where he would hold his work-for-hire sign. Holding his sign, the 29-year-old often thought of a documentary he remembered seeing as a kid. It was something about POWs in the Pacific Theater. In it, the Japanese made these poor suckers march until they died or wished they were dead. But the part of the documentary that always came to mind, while the 29-year-old stood out on the curb, hovering on the border of consciousness and sleep, was how the documentary described the American soldiers falling asleep as they marched. The 29-year-old never believed that such a thing was possible. He thought that that must have been some kind of theatrical exaggeration, a cute little hyperbole to prove just how terrible the conditions were for our troops. But no way was such phenomena possible. 
He had thought this until, one day, he found himself opening his eyes and waking up in that foggy haze of post-slumber, his feet still planted firmly on the ground and his cardboard sign still in his hands. He learned then that if you are tired enough, anything is possible. Whether marching in Indochina or standing on a curb for 16 hours a day, your body can do some pretty tricky things when it's starved for sleep. At any rate, this was the 29-year-old's life. This was his mode of being, barely hanging on, barely surviving. Each and every day of his life, he felt like he was clinging to the edge of a cliff and his fingertips were coated in petroleum jelly. He faced the fragility of life on a constant basis, becoming well-educated on the transience of existence. Like a driver who has just narrowly avoided a head-on collision on the highway, the 29-year-old's heart rate is high, his breath is quick and nervous, and his thoughts are cloaked by the shadow of death, by the closeness of his demise. Any moment could be his last. Whether from starvation, exhaustion, hypothermia, or violence, the 29-year-old could fall from his precarious position and die in obscurity like so many other nameless people living on the fringes of society. The 29-year-old often thinks of how his dead body will be found and in what kind of condition it will be when it's discovered. Maybe a group of juvenile delinquents will find his mangled corpse in a back alley somewhere and recreate scenes from Weekend at Bernie's. Maybe a businessman will see his body laying face down on the sidewalk and in a rare moment of compassion try to offer him some help, only to find that the 29-year-old is very much dead and very much unable to be helped. Maybe a police officer will find his naked body stuffed in a dumpster with his black, frostbitten toes poking out of the lid. In the end, it won't matter how his body is discovered. It will be disposed of in the same way, and any memory of his existence will be lost, and all of his suffering and perseverance will be for nothing. The 29-year-old was arriving at a critical juncture in his career as a homeless man. He was reaching that point where things could no longer foreseeably continue as they had been for the past three years. Things would either have to get better, or he would die. And he would die very soon. There is no plan B. Of course, since living on the streets compels you to become familiar with your mortality in a very intimate way, the 29-year-old was not afraid of death. He'd seen it in all its forms. The quick death, the slow death, the painful, and the peaceful. He'd seen people stab, people starve, people overdose, people beaten to death, people frozen, people die from dehydration. He'd seen it all. Since his departure from the relative safety of his step-uncle's home and into the squalor of homelessness, death had become his constant companion, his roommate, his mentor, and his master. The 29-year-old was ready for death to come and scrape him up off the sidewalk and usher him into the warm confines of oblivion. It would be a great relief to the 29-year-old, something sweet and satisfying like taking off tight boots after a long day. But the little part of the 29-year-old's brain that controlled things like hunger and thirst would not let him acquiesce so easily. It was like there was a little bulldog trapped inside of him, a vicious animal that wouldn't stop fighting until it was completely ravaged and torn to shreds. It wouldn't allow the 29-year-old to simply lie down in the gutter and freeze to death. It forced him to fight. It forced him to trudge through gray and miserable days of starvation and exhaustion. It forced him to stand on the curb and hold his sign. For what purpose and to what end, the 29-year-old couldn't know. But it was on one of those gray and miserable days that the 29-year-old's relationship with death would change dramatically. 
for it was on one of those days when the 29-year-old met Mr. Dagger. Their first meeting was in early January, the grayest and most miserable time of the year. The sun was hidden behind a thin, semi-opaque sheet of low-lying clouds thick enough to block out any nourishing sun rays and thin enough to trick you into thinking the sun might actually come out. Snow blew in the wind, ripped from rooftops or snow mounds, and collected in the 29-year-old's scraggly beard. He was out on his corner, holding his sign, tensing his muscles to keep his whole body from shivering. It was a slow day for the 29-year-old, and a slow day meant few cars, if any, had come down his thoroughfare. Everything was bleak and cold and crusty. The industrial buildings surrounding the 29-year-old were dusted in frost and snow, giving them a monochromatic look. It was one of those days where everything just looks like it was photographed on black and white. No colors, no beauty. Like I said, it was early January, the most miserable time of the year. Towards the early afternoon, about when the winter sun is already thinking about heading home for the night, the 29-year-old saw one of the first cars of the day come growling down the street towards him. Its tires made little crunching noises as it rolled over stale snow and dirty ice, and the 29-year-old couldn't help but notice that the car was what you might call a luxury vehicle. It was a long, sleek automobile of a unique design. It had a very pronounced front hood with dark, tinted windows. And at the very end of the hood sat a glistening ornament. It was a shiny figurine of some kind of winged humanoid figure. The 29-year-old kept his eyes on this hood ornament as the car rolled to a stop at the intersection. The car was a Rolls-Royce Wraith, a luxury car of British origin. The 29-year-old had never seen one in person, though he had seen similar models in movies, especially those period pieces involving English aristocracy. It somehow evoked the image of a horse and carriage or an old-fashioned hearse. It was a beautiful car. The car's engine idled in a quiet and low growl, humming in the cold winter air. The windows were so tinted that the 29-year-old could not see any of the occupants of the car, only his own reflection, the war-torn and windswept countenance of a beleaguered man. In an effort to butter up the individuals inside the Rolls-Royce, the 29-year-old spread his mouth out wide in an artificial smile, a performative display he had delivered to every automobile that passed him for the past three years. He had no idea how horrific and sad his smile looked until he saw it reflected in the dark windows of the Rolls-Royce. Half of his teeth were missing, but that wasn't the worst part. The most disturbing quality of his smile was the lack of emotion. His eyes were sad and empty and filled with nothing but pain and fear. The 29-year-old saw then that an unhappy smile was far more sad and disturbing than any frown could ever be. The traffic light changed, and the 29-year-old expected the pretty car's engine to thunder and the tires to screech and for him to be left standing alone in a dark cloud of exhaust, but the car didn't move. It sat still, the engine idling, and then a whiny, high-pitched screech entered the air. It sounded like a squeegee scraping against dry glass. The 29-year-old saw that it was the sound of the back window slowly rolling down. His reflection was cut in half and then disappeared entirely as the window fell away completely. What was next, the 29-year-old already knew. A hand would emerge from the window holding a palmful of loose change or maybe a couple crinkled dollar bills and the 29-year-old would take the money with a mumbled and embarrassed thank you and then the car would speed away as if from a bank robbery, hoping to put as much distance between them and the homeless as possible. 
But that sequence of events didn't happen on this cold and miserable January afternoon. Instead, the 29-year-old was greeted by the elderly but handsome face of Mr. Dagger. As if emerging from a dark liquid, Mr. Dagger's head came out of the murk of his Rolls Royce and leaned outside the window, the soft light of January illuminating his features in a cold but appealing manner. He had a thick shock of silver hair and a pair of almost glowing blue eyes. Hello there, child, Mr. Dagger said in his gravelly voice. You must be mighty cold out here. You look like you're on death's doorstep. Why don't you come in here and get some of that chill out of you, yes? There was a click, and the door to Mr. Dagger's Rolls Royce swung open, sending a rush of warm air billowing out of the car and wrapping around the 29-year-old's numb fingers and frozen nose. He could feel his muscles relaxing in the face of such delicious warmth. He no longer needed to fight against the unrelenting cold. His body could let its guard down. His shoulders relaxed, his neck grew loose, and he let out a long moan of relief that sounded like what you might hear in a massage parlor or a chiropractor's office. It was a relief so unimaginable that he closed his eyes and felt himself walking closer to the car as if driven by some gravitational pull. Come in, child, Mr. Dagger said, opening the door wider and making room on his leather bench seat. There's plenty of space in here. Mr. Dagger patted the seat beside him with his gloved hand and flashed his wide, pearlescent smile. The 29-year-old was powerless against such primitive appeals to his instincts. He was, as I have previously described, living in a world where self-preservation was at the forefront of every waking thought he ever had, and to let this kind gentleman drive away with his cloud of warmth and comfort would be, in essence, a suicidal action. So, without any questioning or thought of his safety, the 29-year-old scooted inside the warm automobile and closed the door behind him. The 29-year-old didn't notice this. He couldn't have in his state of blissful relaxation. But Mr. Dagger and his driver made sure the door was locked behind him and that he wasn't going anywhere. When the 29-year-old woke up, they were still driving, but now it was dark outside. The twinkling lights of storefronts and street lamps flashed by the car windows in fiery streaks of light. The 29-year-old rubbed his eyes as the fog of sleep was reluctant to leave his mind. For a moment, he had trouble remembering where he was or why he was there. But his muscles felt sweet and sore like after a fulfilling workout, and his mind felt rested and strong, even with the cloudy fog of slumber hanging over it. He looked beside him and saw Mr. Dagger there holding a silk handkerchief to his nose. Mr. Dagger was staring at him with his piercing blue eyes. The 29-year-old got the feeling he had been watching him for a very long time. I'm glad you're awake now, child, Mr. Dagger said. I didn't have the heart to wake you from such a peaceful-looking nap. You looked so sweet lying there. Now, I hope you won't think this impolite, Mr. Dagger said, pointing to his handkerchief. But you are exuding a very fragrant scent. Forgive me, but I'm afraid you smell something like a sewer. The 29-year-old turned away from Mr. Dagger and looked back out the window. He said nothing. He watched the streets drift by, one after another. They seemed to fade into each other after a while. The stores, the lights, the people, they all looked the same. Every so often he would spot one of his own kind. A person in rags, sitting on a curb, or huddled under a stoop, or sifting through a garbage bin. 
He felt such a strong affinity and yet such a strong hatred for these people. He wanted to save them all, but he also wished none of them existed. He hated them for what they revealed, for what they showed the 29-year-old. He hated them because they were repulsive and frightening and ugly, and he knew that he was one of them, that he was the incarnation of all of those horrible things as well. Mr. Dagger cleared his throat. Uh, are you hungry, child? Mr. Dagger asked. You must be starving. Would you like something to eat? The moment this question was posed, the emptiness in the 29-year-old's stomach became immediately apparent. He felt the acidity of a long, empty stomach scorching the lining of his digestive tract. He felt the acute pangs of starvation punching at the back of his abdomen. Now that he was out of the cold and just had his first good rest in years, hunger became the ultimate necessity that needed fulfillment. The 29-year-old nodded to Mr. Dagger. Ah, Mr. Dagger said, I'm sure you're starving. What would you like to eat? The 29-year-old thought about this for a moment and then said, uh, I like Wendy's. C can, could we go to Wendy's? The 29-year-old could see a smile spread across Mr. Dagger's face, even beneath the silky handkerchief. Yes, Mr. Dagger said, I think we can do that. Within a matter of minutes, the 29-year-old was being handed greasy paper bags with Wendy's red face printed on their sides. The bags were filled with all of the usual fare, burgers, bacon cheeseburgers, fries, nuggets, and chicken sandwiches. Then, lastly, the 29-year-old was handed two trays, one filled with large cups of soda and the other with Wendy's signature Frosties. Now, Mr. Dagger said, I don't normally condone any kind of eating in my car but I think this is a special occasion, don't you, child? The 29-year-old nodded in a kind of absent agreement. He was too overwhelmed by the sights and smells of the food to think of anything else. Years of fighting for his life on the unforgiving streets had made the 29-year-old cold and hard and difficult to swindle. But sitting in the plush leather of the Rolls-Royce, surrounded by hot food and warm air, the 29-year-old was anything but nervous or apprehensive. He wasn't afraid. What was there to be afraid of? To the 29-year-old, the only difference between dying at the hands of an old eccentric rich guy and dying at the hands of the elements was that with the rich guy, at least he'd die warm and with a belly full of Wendy's Frosties. Well, please, Mr. Dagger said, his breath wiggling and tossing the handkerchief in front of his mouth. Eat. Eat up, child. The 29-year-old did just that. He dove into the food with an animal-like viciousness, unwrapping burger after burger, sandwich after sandwich, stuffing the calorically dense food past his chapped lips and down to his empty stomach. He tossed back the milkshakes and the sodas in quick succession, never even slowing to belch or to let the food settle. While the 29-year-old was attacking this meal, he noticed the car veering off into a part of town he wasn't familiar with. The streets darkened, but not in a dreary or frightening way, but into a peaceful, atmospheric kind of ambience. The soft light was a deliberate attempt at stylization. It had nothing to do with inadequate funds or faulty lamps. The bright, unforgiving street lamps were replaced with a gentler, more pleasing light, as if the street lights were trying to be quiet, unnoticeable. The 29-year-old imagined that this was how all French parks were lit. He imagined Parisian lovers sitting on park benches, holding hands and kissing under the soft light. He thought that was good. The car moved further in this new direction, passing romantic-looking homes and buildings. 
It was the kind of neighborhood you might drive through during the holidays just to check out their pretty light displays. After passing through this neighborhood, the car took a sharp left jog and headed up a hill that was rich with historic architecture. Great brick manors stood behind gilded iron gates, their facades angry and severe in the meager streetlight. But even so, they were beautiful in their own grim fashion. Some of their large pane windows were glowing with amber light, and every now and again a shadow would float by, and Gregory began to imagine the people who lived in these mansions. People that wore tuxedos and formal gowns. People that ate their meals before a large granite fireplace and slept under canopied beds. They were aliens to him. People that inhabited a different world entirely. People whose life experiences were so disparate from his own that he could hardly say they were even of the same species. The 29-year-old was entranced by these prominent Gothic structures. He had never seen anything on such a grand scale in his young life. His existence was sequestered to the dirty corners of the inner city, far from any sprawling estates or private residences that boasted carriage houses and fountains. He had fallen into a world apart. He was a stranger in a strange land. He was getting a first-hand look at how the other half lived, and he found it to be as magnificent and unnecessary as movies and TV made it out to be. And then things got even stranger. Just as the 29-year-old was finishing the last of his Wendy's, the car made a final turn down a gravel road that was lit only by the moon. The road itself was lined by great pines which were spaced at perfect, symmetrical intervals along the roadway. The 29-year-old looked out his window and watched as the moon flashed through the tips of the pines like it was playing an accelerated form of peekaboo. It was very quiet, one of the signature features of the Rolls-Royce. The 29-year-old could hear the rattly, metallic breath of Mr. Dagger beside him. It sounded mechanical and rickety, like a rusty machine that needed repair. He thought for a moment that he heard Mr. Dagger begin to breathe faster, as if hit with a sudden wave of anxiety. But, whether Mr. Dagger was caught in a nervous state or not, it didn't matter to the 29-year-old. He was as calm and sedate as he had ever been. He wasn't worried about where he was being taken, or why. All he knew was that he had a belly full of food and a warm cushioned seat to rest on. He was so comfortable, in fact, that he was beginning to drift off to sleep once again. His eyes were growing heavy, and his thoughts were floating around, docile and aimless, urging him to fall asleep. And he would have fallen asleep, too. But that was when he saw it. Coming into focus at the end of the long gravel lane was the largest single-standing structure the 29-year-old had ever seen in his life. It was so anomalous and so far beyond anything the 29-year-old had seen that he had to sit up straight in his seat to get a better look at the approaching residence, ducking his head and cocking his neck to see the whole building through the windshield. He was entranced. He almost couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand it. It was something that went beyond all understanding, like Stonehenge or the heads of Easter Island. Looking at it, pale and stark in the moonlight, the 29-year-old thought it was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. More beautiful than the photos he had seen of the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean at sunset. For this was built by the hands of men. Imagined, designed, crafted, and built by the ingenuity and toil and determination of humanity. And yet, the edifice was so large and indescribable that it commanded the same awe and wonder as would the most remarkable of natural beauties. To the 29-year-old, it was a structure fit for the footsteps of God and his angels. Man may have created it, but its beauty and prowess transcended man. 
The idea that a human could ever own or even maintain such a sprawling structure was baffling. It would be like owning Mount Everest or the Empire State Building. The car came to a slow roll and stopped some 20 yards in front of the mansion's main gate. The 29-year-old unbuckled his seatbelt and crawled towards the windshield, drawing the attention of the stern driver, who looked back at the 29-year-old and then quickly turned away, as if trying to keep his face hidden. Isn't it astonishing, child? Mr. Dagger asked, still pressing his handkerchief against his nose. The residence is called the Rosewood House, named for the timbers that populate this region. First built in 1854, in the English manorial style by a railroad tycoon, it quickly became the most prominent private residence in this region of the country. It was pillaged and plundered during the American Civil War and left empty for some decades as the original owners vacated the premises. It was then restored and remodeled in the Beaux-Arts style in 1882. The remodel was architected by Harold Trombauer, the most sought-after architect of the elite at the time. During the remodel, they added the colonnade you see surrounding the house, as well as an extra 25,000 feet of living space, bringing the total square footage to 62,000 feet. It is 7,000 square feet larger than the White House, and incomparably more beautiful. It is the crown jewel of our state, and the largest private residence in the tri-state area, home to over 50 rooms, 23 bathrooms, an indoor pool, bowling alley, astronomy tower, arboretum, greenhouse, shooting range, art gallery, and the largest privately owned wine collection on this side of the Atlantic. It is a private paradise, a self-contained city, a monument to America's industrial might and private wealth. Do you know who lives there, child? The 29-year-old shrugged. Uh... Do you live there? The 29-year-old asked. Mr. Dagger smiled and shook his head. No, no, child. My tastes are slightly more modern. But I'm glad to hear you aren't familiar with the owner. This is imperative to my purposes. The 29-year-old was silent. You don't ask too many questions, do you, child? Mr. Dagger asked, finally removing his handkerchief from his nose. Are you not wondering why I picked you up this afternoon. The 29-year-old remained silent for a moment, and then just shrugged his shoulders like an indifferent child. I, I don't know, the 29-year-old said, just, just because, just, just to be nice, I guess. Mr. Dagger smiled. His teeth were now on display, thick and square like perfect little cubes of ivory. You will learn, child, that everything has its price. Everything. Mr. Dagger checked the time on his gold watch and rubbed his eyes. It was getting late for the old man. He was someone who liked to be snug under his bed linens by 8.30 every night. What if I told you I can make it so you were never hungry again? Mr. Dagger asked. What if I told you I could take care of every one of your needs, great and small? No more living on the streets. No more worry. No more fear. The 29-year-old leaned back in his seat and looked at Mr. Dagger's bluish-gray eyes. They were the color of the early morning sky. Are, are, uh, are you, are you being for real? The 29-year-old asked. Mr. Dagger nodded. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, what's the, what, what would I have to do for that? 
What would you be willing to do? Mr. Dagger asked. The 29-year-old was silent. Mr. Dagger leaned forward in his leather seat to get a better view of the estate sitting in front of them. He sighed. The man who owns that mansion mistakes his seclusion for security. There is little surveillance here. An unsophisticated alarm system that cannot do much more than shriek loudly and a million odd windows just waiting to be smashed in. There are numerous points of entry and egress and miles between this home and the nearest witness who might hear or see something. The hardest obstacle to overcome may just be this ten-foot fence, but I'm sure you could manage that. I'm sure you could find a way. What, 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 are, you, what are you saying? The 29-year-old asked. I'm a very well-connected man. I could make your life easy. I could have you living like royalty by the end of the month, if you so choose. But how would I choose that? Your little sign. It does say, work for hire, does it not? Uh, I, yeah, it does. Simply choose to work for me. That's all I ask. Well, what, but I mean, what do you want me to do? What are you asking? Can I be candid with you? Mr. Dagger asked, his smile fading into something sinister. Um, what does candid mean? The 29-year-old asked. It means being perfectly casual. Being honest at the stake of your reputation, perhaps. Uh, yeah, you can be candid with me. <laughs> well, child, I would like to hire your services. I need you to do something that many might find to be immoral or repugnant, if not very illegal. What do you want me to do? I need you to kill the man who lives in that pretty little estate. That was part one of Work for Hire. Keep an eye out for part two. Um, it should be out in the coming weeks. This podcast is written, read, produced, and edited by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. I just want to thank you all again for listening. Thank you. Thank you.